All right, I trust that was an encouragement to you. I always enjoy uh, the communion service, a time to reflect. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1, the book of Luke chapter 1. It's been a good week, a full week. I trust yours has been a good week as well. It's good to be here. It's good to see all of you here as well. We're, we finished up our series last week for the year, and now we're jumping into uh, some messages focused on the Christmas season. I enjoy this time of year as well. Uh, if you've been here, coming to the church for any length of time, you might remember a series we did uh, several years ago, a Christmas program, I guess, called The Twelve Voices of Christmas. Does that ring a bell with some of you? And uh, it's looking at the Christmas story through the eyes of 12 individuals uh, who were involved in the story trying to get their perspective. What was it like from from their eyes? And so last year, I started a series working through some of those 12. Uh, We looked at Gabriel first, the angel who came and broke God's 400 years of silence with the prophecies and the the message there to Zacharias. We followed that up by talking about Zacharias as well, this old priest and and the, the joy in his heart, the doubt, but also the faith. And then we looked at John the Baptist as the forerunner, uh, this eccentric character, we might say, uh, that came out of uh, the hill country of Judea and, and preached repentance and prepared the way for the Messiah. Uh, so this year, I'd like to take the next three weeks and look at three more characters in this, in this 12 Voices of Christmas. And uh, the first one we're going to look at is Elizabeth. And I've asked Lee if she would come and read the little vignette uh, that we have uh, for Elizabeth, the voice of blessing. Lee, come and read for us, please. The Musings of Elizabeth, the Voice of Blessing. Barren, if there's one word a woman in Israel doesn't like to hear, that's it, barren. It wasn't so bad when we were first married, and I was young. There was plenty of time to bear a child. Even in my middle years, I kept hoping there was still an outside chance. Then, one day, I was an old woman. If children are a blessing from God, then barrenness must be his curse. I bore that curse in the way everyone in our community treated me. I often felt like Hannah from the Old Testament. God heard Hannah's prayer. Why had he not heard mine? It seemed as though God didn't care. I used to lie awake at night and imagine that I heard Rachel saying to Jacob, Give me children, else I die. Hadn't I lived blamelessly before the Lord? Hadn't I done all that he had asked of me? Yet, I was barren. What was wrong with me? The questions nagged and never went away. Oh, I'm sorry you'd think to hear me talk I was the voice of complaint. But I'm not. I am the voice of blessing. One day while Zacharias was in Jerusalem, the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him we would have a very special son named John. Oh, I know, I know. Every mother says her son is special, but not every mother gets her news from Gabriel. He said our son was to be dedicated to God and that he would turn many of our people back to Jehovah. Our son would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, that great prophet. Such wonderful promises. Well, the promise came true. I conceived a child with Zacharias in my old age. I understand now why Sarah named her son Isaac, meaning laughter. 
Sometimes in the evening, we just sat together and laughed. Doesn't the thought of a pregnant granny make you laugh? For several months, I remained in seclusion. My John was to be filled with the Spirit of God from the womb, and so I devoted those long, quiet days to God. I see some of the uh, young wives so busy during their time they carry their children, but I was thankful for the slow, thoughtful hours of an old woman's life. In my sixth month of pregnancy, my young cousin, Mary, arrived from Nazareth. I always had a special feeling for Mary, and this visit would only cause those feelings to increase. At the sound of Mary's voice, I felt my babe leap in my womb. At that very instant, I knew we were in the presence of the Lord. Overwhelmed, I blessed Mary, and I blessed the coming Messiah. We rejoiced together, singing and praising God. What a wonderful time we had. In order to divert some of the town's curiosity away from Mary, I began going about in public again. Oh, what a curiosity I was. White hair, pregnant, didn't add up, did it? Our friends laughed and teased. Zacharias, who had always enjoyed a reputation for his witty tongue, had to leave the last words to others. Whenever I made my way past the shop of Eli, who chants in the synagogue, he would laugh and say, Sing, O barren one, break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. Yes, I was one of the twelve voices of Christmas. Mine was the voice of blessing. Blessing because I was no longer barren. Blessing because Mary arrived to share my joy. Blessing because her baby would bring God's salvation to our world. All right, thank you, Lee. Let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Uh, that gives us a little synopsis, right, of the life of Elizabeth and the story here. And uh, let's just expand on that a little bit in the time that we have left. Uh, we're going to see as we pick this up, first of all, a depressing backdrop. Let's start reading in verse 5 of Luke 1. It says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. That's our first introduction to this lady. But before we even get to that, there's a phrase that stands out to me. It says, in the days of Herod the king. It's a small little short phrase that we might just gloss right over. And yet, it's important for us to understand what life was like for the Israelites during this period of time. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but just to, to say that it was a dark time. It was a, a dangerous time. It was a difficult time to be a Jew in Israel. The Herod that's mentioned here is Herod the Great. And if you've read history, you understand some things about him. He was a vassal of Rome. He was the king, but he was just appointed to keep the Jews in line. His title was merely a courtesy. I mean, he might have been their, a king, but he was not their king. <laughs> he was a half-breed Jew. And they didn't recognize his authority, but they feared his authority. Herod was known for his amazing building projects, but he was equally known for his severe bouts of paranoia and for his jealous fits of rage in which he spilled the blood of countless men and women and children. We get a glimpse of that as we read in Matthew how he killed the babies two and under after the visit of the wise men. Remember that account? It's the same Herod. And yet historians tell us that compared to the other deeds that he did, this one was considered quite mild, if you can, if you can imagine that. 
I mean, we've just seen what Hamas has done in Israel as they came across the border and, and what they did to some of those babies. What Herod was doing here, there's similarities, but this even paled in comparison to the other atrocities that he that he'd committed. One person said you'd likely find it on page five in the Jerusalem Times. It certainly would have made wouldn't have made front page news. That gives us a glimpse into this person and who he was like and what times were like. The people were, were living in fear. They'd been beaten into submission. They kept their heads down and their mouths shut because they didn't want to come under the wrath of Herod. And so that was what life was like during the days of Herod the king. But it's against this dark backdrop that we now see this amazing story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. What a refreshing contrast that we see in these two verses. Talking about Zacharias and Elizabeth and their righteousness before God. Uh, She was the wife of Zacharias, who was a faithful priest. She also, it says, was of the daughters of Aaron. So she was from the priestly line as well. In fact, her name is kind of a derivation off of Aaron's wife's name. Uh, If you remember back to the Old Testament, his wife was Elishaba. And so very similar to Elizabeth, you can see the connection there. Uh, Likely named after Aaron's wife as well. To have both husband and wife in the priestly line was considered a double honor. That's Zacharias and Elizabeth, doubly honored. They're a blessed couple. But the passage goes on. It says that they were both righteous before God. They walked in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, and they did it in a blameless way. The commandments there, I think we could infer, is dealing with the moral law. Not just the Ten Commandments, but the Ten plus the other moral obligations that God puts on his people. And they walked according to those blameless. I don't think that means they never sinned. We don't want to infer that, but they had dealt with their sin properly. Just like you and I can be considered blameless before God as we come and we confess our sin, and he cleanses and he forgives. But it says also they walked in the ordinances of the Lord. Uh, That'd be the ceremonial law. You think back to the book of Leviticus and all the instructions that are given to the nation of Israel, all those ceremonial laws, they followed those. And, And they honored those, and they did it in a way that they could say, that the Lord could say here that they did it and they were blameless. It's a rare thing for the Lord to speak in such glowing terms of some of his children. We find it a few times in scripture, uh, but it stands out because it doesn't happen that often. And the fact that he does so here demonstrates that this couple was as advanced in saintliness as they were in age. These individuals walked with God. I think it's safe to say that she also held firmly to the promises of God. It's interesting, names meant more in those days than they did to do today. I'm not sure if you were named for a specific reason, um, but the name Zacharias means Jehovah remembers. I wonder how often he thought about that in regards to the fact that it had been 400 years since they'd had any word from God. God, really? Do you remember? Elizabeth's name means the oath of God. You put these two together and you have God remembers his oath. God remembers his promise. God remembers his covenant. I think there were times they had to come back and reflect on that and hold to that because they couldn't see it with their eyes. They had to accept it by faith. And so we see this wonderful lady, it's wonderful couple, but the passage goes on and then next we see a conflicting reality. Look down in verse 7, it starts out with these words, and they had no child. And that just kind of smacks you in the face as you're thinking about it from a Jewish perspective. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. She had no child. 
the heartache that that entailed for a Jewish woman is hard for us to fathom today. It's hard for us to understand. You see, our culture is different. In fact, I think it's sad, but in our culture today, remaining childless is almost becoming a trend. Have you noticed that? Uh, Couples are staying childless or they're waiting longer and longer to have children. Why? Because they've got a career path that they're invested in or they've got goals that that they've set. They want to travel. They want to do all these things. And children, (laughs) as much as we love children, they are a bit of an inconvenience, (laughs) right? And it might cramp their style just a little bit. And so they take the selfish perspective and they choose not to have children. Folks, the, the life in Israel was totally different than that. They totally believe, Psalm 127, that children are in heritage of the Lord, that the fruit of the womb is his reward, that, that the man that has his quiver full is blessed, and the woman as well. But if we take that as it is, then children are a heritage from God, then the opposite would be true as well. If you don't have children, you don't receive that heritage and that reward and that blessing. Elizabeth had joined the ranks of Sarah and Rachel and Manoah's wife and Hannah from the Old Testament. Godly women whose wombs had been shut and she couldn't bear a child. From a medical standpoint, it indicates that the problem lay with Elizabeth. She was barren. She couldn't have children. And the pain and that heartache never went away. Proverbs tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. How long had she been hoping and dreaming and praying and begging God for a son? And when that didn't happen, time after time, she probably was struggling with that. I like the way that little reading brought out the idea of of the the early days from the time that they were newlyweds. Imagine the excitement as they're coming together and just being together as newlyweds. Did did he get a year off to, to cheer up the wife of his youth, as the Old Testament talks about? I'm not sure how that all worked. But with that excitement, there was the expectancy that God would give them a child. And they relished that, and there was that anticipation. And yet month after month went by, and no conception. And and months turned into years, and still no child. And I'm sure there were many tearful pleas to God. I'm sure there were times where she struggled. God, what's wrong with me? God, is there something in my life that I've done that I've disappointed you? God, why aren't you giving me a son? God, what have I done to deserve this sorrow? God, maybe even times where she said, God, if you loved me, you would. (laughs) You ever resorted to that when you're talking to God? Maybe she felt that she was letting her husband down. I mean, Zacharias probably wanted a son more than anything, someone that he could bring and see follow his footsteps in the priesthood. And that guilt and that shame that she was dealing with because she looked out and everybody else was having kids. Well, I'm sure everyone else wasn't. But it seems that way when you're not. Look at everybody else. So Elizabeth and Zacharias prayed and they hoped and they waited. But as they waited, they bore a burden of reproach and social stigma. If you look later on in the passage, after she's conceived, she praises God for taking away her reproach among men. That word reproach has the idea of disgrace or shame. It's the idea of even being reviled. She was looked down on. Uh, People talked about her behind her back. They must think to themselves, what in the world has this woman done to deserve the harsh hand of God in this way? I mean, on the outside, everything looks great. She's the perfect priest's wife. But evidently, there's something else going on because she doesn't have a child. And we know this wasn't true anymore for Elizabeth than it was for Job, right? These were both righteous people. And yet human nature is what it is, and the condescending looks, those silent, communicated volumes, and would have been incredibly hard to ignore. 
this ever-present dilemma of reconciling what she knew of God with what she was feeling in her heart and what she was experiencing in her life. You can imagine the struggle. Well, the passage goes on. It says not only was she barren, but she was aged. aged. <laughs> what does the text say? Well stricken in years. It says the same thing later on in verse 18. Guys, let me give you just a quick hint. You're not supposed to give the age of your wife. But if somebody asks, I would not resort to this phrase either. I can't tell you how old she is, but she's well stricken in years. That might get you in just as much trouble as uh, just giving her age. So just a thought there. Not that you're tempted to do that, but anyway. That one was free. I won't charge for that one. The word here means far advanced in days. In Hebrew culture, 60 years old was considered the beginning of old age. And here it says she was well stricken in years. So she's older than 60. Uh, Maybe she's 70. We don't know. I I read one commentator that put their age, Zacharias and Elizabeth's age, similar to Abraham and Sarah's. Wow. Uh, We don't know for sure. That's all speculation. The point is she was past the time of bearing children. It's almost identical to the phrase we see of Sarah uh, in the Old Testament, but there it's accompanied by the words, it ceased to be with her after the manner of women. And so I think it's safe to assume that the, the same is true here for Elizabeth. And as her age increased, her hope began to wane. I think the two of them had hoped and prayed together all these years, and as Alfred Edersheim put it so poetically, now in the evening of life, the flower of hope had all but closed its fragrant cup. Hope was pretty much gone. But here's what I want us to see. It's in the midst of this disappointment, it's in the same context, that God says she was faithful. That God said she walked according to his laws, that she was blameless. Even in the midst of this great, the greatest disappointment of her life, she walked with God. And folks, there's a tremendous lesson that we can learn from that as well. Well, as we read on in the passage, we're not going to look at it in detail, but it's time for Zacharias to go to the temple for his biannual responsibilities. Twice a year, these different priests in their courses would go to, to deal with the temple responsibilities. And so Elizabeth gets a week alone. Ladies, what would you do with a week alone? No husband to cook for, clean up after. I mean, you've got time on your hands. Maybe she had projects she wanted to attend to. Maybe she had friends she wanted to visit with. We don't know. But put yourself in her shoes. What would you do if you had that week alone? We know what happened for Zacharias, but all of this is news to her. She doesn't know anything that's going on. She doesn't realize that he's just talked to Gabriel and that he's been given the promise of a son and that he's been given the penalty of being mute, not being able to speak, and possibly not even being able to hear. All of that she doesn't know. So we've come to the end of this week, and now Zacharias comes home. And my mind does weird things. I think about what must that have been like. I mean, he can't just say, hey, honey, I'm home. I mean, he can, but nothing's going to come out of his mouth. Does he knock on the door? What does he do to get her attention? Um, did she think he was just messing with her, playing a practical joke, you know, just kind of mouthing the words and, oh, come on, honey, knock it off. Tell me, how was your week, right? We don't know how that all went down. But before long, it became clear that he really couldn't speak and possibly couldn't even hear. He's got the greatest news in the world to share with his wife, and he can't do it. And she's sitting there, and it's obvious he's got something to say, and and she's trying to figure out what it is he's trying to to tell. So they're hand gesturing, and they're communicating with with sign language and whatever, and and then at what point do they figure out, okay, we've got to start writing this down. We've got to start communicating back and forth. You know, it's not as simple in their day as it is in our day. They had the ability to write. They They had all those things, but it's different. They had papyrus. 
They had to have made their own ink. Maybe vellum was animal skin that they would write on if it was more permanent. So how would they, how would they write these notes back and forth and get this taken care of? Verse 63 is interesting. It's at the end when, when the baby is born and they're arguing about the name. It says that he was given a writing tablet. So I did a little research on that. And, and usually what this was was a piece of wood. Maybe it was a piece of brass. And it was covered with wax. And they would take a sharp instrument, a stylus of some sort, and they would engrave, they would etch quickly the letters and the words in that wax. And as they filled up that tablet, that piece of, of wood, got it all done, then they could heat it, they could smooth the wax over, and then they could let it cool, and then they could start again. Now, I want you to think with me about this process. <laughs> How long must this have taken for Elizabeth to hear all that, that Zacharias had to say? And then, ladies, you know you're going to have a thousand questions. And asking those questions back and trying to get answers, this would have gone on for some period of time. Probably frustrating. But before too long, it becomes clear to Elizabeth that Zacharias had seen an angel. And this angel had promised that she was going to have a son. And that this son would be the forerunner to the Messiah. Imagine what that must have done in her heart. Well, we see as time goes on, a promise fulfilled and a prayer answered, hope revived. Look at verse 24. And after those days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. There's several statements here in the Gospel of Luke that are just poignant in their brevity. Uh, We see, I mentioned the first one earlier when it says she had no child. And here, equally brief, and Elizabeth, his wife, conceived. What a statement. So much there. I wonder what the emotions were that she was feeling at this time. The loving intimacy with her husband, this idea of renewed hope, hope that soon blossoms to amazing wonder as the hands of time are turned back, as it were, and a son is conceived in her womb. Her womb, once barren by medical standards and then dead by reason of age, now supernaturally springs back to life as a child begins to grow within. Boy, there's joy and there's gladness. She's rejoicing in the mercy of God and rejoicing in answered prayer. I'm sure it was very much a pinch me so I know this is real kind of moment. Or if I'm dreaming, please don't wake me up. Imagine what that must have been like for her. Well, the end of that verse that we just read, verse 24, says, Then she hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. A time of seclusion. You know, Zacharias couldn't communicate And that afforded him much time for contemplation. I think he was doing a lot of meditating and pondering, thinking back to Old Testament scriptures, putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And I think it appears here that Elizabeth took a cue from her husband and did the same. I think there's a point where she probably didn't want to be walking around as a public spectacle. Uh, She could have hidden this for a while, uh, but only for a period of time. But the idea here is that she concealed herself. She went into, into seclusion. And as she does that, She begins to ponder the things that she's heard. What does she think about for five months? Well, I'm sure there's responsibilities around the house still to do, but there's only so many times you can dust the mantle, right? And you can only cook so many meals. She had ample time to sit and to think, to reflect upon what God had done in her life, to bask in the joy and the gladness within her heart. But I think much of the time she was thinking back to what Zacharias had told her, that her son would be great. What does that mean? He's going to be a Nazarite, okay? There's some practical things we're going to have to deal with. We've got to worry not have grape juice, something else we're going to drink. As a mom, she's thinking through the practical side of things, right? Thinking about what that all meant. 
I'm sure she began to think about Old Testament scriptures and they became to, began to come alive to her in a more fuller meaning as she's piecing these puzzle pieces together. Reflecting on the fact that he'd be responsible for turning many back to God. That he'd have the spirit and power of Elijah. So now she's thinking about those stories from the Old Testament about Elijah and what kind of a character he was and what kind of a character her son was going to be. He must have been an interesting child to raise, I'm thinking. But most importantly, I think she thought about that last statement, that he would prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Wow. That's what she'd hoped for, more than even hoping for a son, hoping that Jesus Christ would come. God remembers his oath, and here it was taking place for her. Could it be that this Messiah could still come when I'm alive? Absolutely, that's a possibility. I'm sure those five months passed slowly but meaningfully. Well, as you're reading down through the story, we've got to take a little bit of a break because we realize in verse 26 that it breaks now to the angel coming to Mary uh, there in Nazareth. And we want to skip over that because we'll look at that at another time. But at the tail end of Gabriel's visit to Mary, notice what he says. Uh, In verse 36, he says, Behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. So this word comes to Mary and that prompts a visit. So she takes off. And it says in verse 39, She arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judea. So we see a surprise visit. The language of the text indicates that she left quickly. Uh, She left in haste. There's no way for her to get word to Elizabeth ahead of time, so she just goes and shows up. Had they anticipated her arrival, they'd have met her in the courtyard or even at the gate of the city. But the text says she's entered into the house. And you can picture this in your mind as well. Maybe a quick knock on the door and run in surprise. What must that have been like? It says that she saluted Elizabeth. Here's the dictionary definition. A verbal greeting along with the customary tokens of affection. All right, that's kind of, that's kind of dictionary-ish, right? What did that look like? Two ladies that haven't seen each other in quite a while. They're hugging and they're talking over each other and they're dancing around and they're hugging again and, and just rejoicing in that time together. You can picture it what that must have been like. But here's something I want us to see. There was an amazing reaction. Look in verse 41. It came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. This was more than just the typical response of an infant kicking in the womb, right? We've all been there, right? You get to put your hand on the belly and you feel a little baby kick, right? That's not what this is talking about. The word means to jump for joy, It was a supernatural recognition of who Mary was and the Messiah that was recently conceived within her. And the babe responded in this manner, and it says that Elizabeth also was filled with the Holy Spirit. John was as well, because Luke chapter 1, verse 15 promises that this child would be filled by the Spirit of God from the womb. And here that same feeling now comes upon his mother, and she recognizes that Mary is the mother of the Messiah. And that happens even before Mary has a chance to recount the visit with the angel. Well, Elizabeth bursts into an impromptu song. We don't see it here in our English Bible, but it is very much Hebrew poetry, and likely it was something that she sang. I look in verse 42. She spake, or she sang out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believes, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. This is where we see that she's the voice of blessing. 
Blessing occurs over and over in this song. A twofold blessing, one for Mary and one for the babe, the Messiah. Second, we see a humble acknowledgement. Why do I deserve a visit from you? Stop and think about this for a second. Elizabeth was the older, right? As the older of the two, she could have felt slighted that Mary was given the greater honor of bearing the Christ child and not her. But do you see any envy, any jealousy at all in this song? No, we see gratitude and humility. Why was such an honor given to me? How is it that such notice is taken of me? I don't deserve this. Not only am I favored with a child, but I receive a visit from the mother of my Lord. But then we go on and we see a divine recognition. That phrase is significant. The mother of my Lord. Folks, Elizabeth is the very first person to recognize and worship the Messiah. And she did it before the Messiah was even born. While he was just recently conceived and thinned the womb of Mary. The Spirit of God caused her to understand this truth. And as the voice of blessing, the voice of worship, she worshiped Jesus Christ first. While the song goes on and she pronounces a blessing on Mary for believing, uh, the tense of that changes. It actually is, uh, blessed is she. I think it could include anybody that, that understands this. I think the blessing goes more than just to Mary. But also a promise of fulfillment. The idea that everything God told you is going to happen is going to come true. Why? It came true for me. It's going to come true for you as well. Well, this surprise visit turns into an extended stay, and, and we can only imagine what that must have been like, filled with conversation and encouragement. I mean, you've got to admit, for, for like six months, it's been pretty quiet around the house. <laughs> Zacharias hasn't been able to participate in conversation, <clears throat> and ladies like to talk. I'm not saying that in a bad way, but they do. Can you imagine what this must have been like? Now she has somebody else to converse with. The chatter that just kept going on and on, back and forth through the house. Maybe Zacharias was glad that he couldn't hear at that point. I don't know. I'm just speculating a little bit. But imagine kindred spirits now joined even closer because they both are experiencing something similar. What all did they talk about? I don't know. It was a time of mentoring. It was a time where Elizabeth was able to share her wisdom of walking with God and and living with him for for a lifetime. Perhaps they had conversations about marriage. Perhaps they talked about, okay, how am I going to tell Joseph? I don't know. I'm not sure what all came up. But those three months went by quickly. And as Elizabeth's time drew near, we see Mary returning to her own home. And we'll pick up the story now down in chapter 1, verse 57. Now Elizabeth's full time had come that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. Another one of those short little statements with so much meaning. She brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. The child arrives. She brings forth a son. There's great rejoicing. We move on, and we see there's a naming ceremony and a circumcision. That'd be eight days later. came to pass, verse 59, that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, And they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. There would be a rabbi in charge of the ceremony. And as he came, he would go through the process of circumcision. There would be several things that they would say, many scriptures that they would read. It was a special time. But this rabbi in charge naturally assumed that the son would be named after the father. And the prayer would go something like this. It hasn't changed much in all these years of history. The Jewish tradition is very solid in some of these things. Here's something like what he would have said. Our God and the God of our fathers raise up this child to his father and mother and let his name be called in Israel, Zacharias, the son of Zacharias. 
Let his father rejoice in the issue of his loins and his mother in the fruit of his womb, as it is written in your holy word. But as he's giving this pronouncement and this prayer, all of a sudden the solemnness of that moment is interrupted because Elizabeth says, no, not so. (laughs) His name is not Zachariah. She interrupts the proceedings. His name shall be John. Well, that's, that's unusual. That's not something that normally happens. And now you've got this confusion and probably arguments going back and forth. And so they bring the writing tablet to Zacharias for him to settle it all once and for all. And what does he write? Short and sweet. His name is John. Settles the matter right there. And with that, his tongue is loosened and he spontaneously breaks forth into a joyful song of praise. What a beautiful account to begin our look at the Christmas season. A godly woman maintaining a faith in God as she dealt with the disappointments of life. Can you relate? Has your life had disappointments? Well, remain faithful to God just like Elizabeth did. She saw her faith come to reality as God grants her a son for which she had fervently prayed. A son that would grow up and prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah. What a great beginning to our Christmas season. Let's just take a couple minutes here and think about some lessons that we can learn from Elizabeth. You know, Elizabeth is often overlooked in the Christmas story. Many times we begin right in Luke chapter 2. We don't even back up to chapter 1 and get this background, but I think it's important to see it. Number one, never give up on a prayer that hasn't been answered. How many of you would say, you know, I've been praying for something for years and years and years. It hasn't come true. Has God given up on me and has he given up on this prayer? Folks, never give up on prayer because God is still faithful. He answered for Elizabeth and Zacharias and he can answer for you as well. And I might add this, the longer the wait, the greater the joy. It's never too late until God takes you home or takes that person home to whom to which you've been praying. Number two, God-focused living produces God-honoring character. I'm not saying that Elizabeth and Zacharias were perfect, but the scriptures attest to the way they lived their lives. And I think it's the way that they lived their lives that gave them faithfulness in prayer and the ability to handle disappointments properly, uh, the, willing to, the ability to respond in humility to the news that Mary gave. We see incredible results of a lifetime spent walking with God. Something to think about and meditate on in the life of Elizabeth. Number three, righteous living does not preclude us from difficulties in this life. Wouldn't it be nice if that was the case? (laughs) Now, I will back up and say righteous living does exclude us from a lot of the difficulties of life, the self-inflicted difficulties of life, but it doesn't mean that you're going to have a life that's that's pain-free. But righteous living does help us see those things rightly and respond to them correctly. Challenges will come. But as we walk with God, he'll give us the ability to walk in faith, to keep on serving, to keep on worshiping, to keep on believing, no matter what hardships come into our lives. Number four, I see Elizabeth here as a great example of the older generation mentoring the younger generation. We could park on that for a long time because we have a lot in the older generation here, don't we? I love the way that she took Mary under her wing. There was three months of discipleship that went on here. Titus chapter 2 reminds us that the older women need to teach the younger women. And if you look through that passage, it's teaching how to do life, how to live this Christian life and how to do it in a way that that honors God. So moms, you can do that with your daughters. And grandmas, you can do that with your daughters and your granddaughters. But you can do it with others as well. Find a young lady to mentor Men, find a young man to mentor and pour your life into them like Elizabeth did here for Mary. 
And as we wrap this up with one final thought, God's timing is always best. I'm sure there were times that Elizabeth would have argued that point. Because <laughs> she couldn't understand how God's timing was best. There was doubt, I'm sure. But God knows what he's doing and his timing is right. And that prompts me to think of Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. You know these verses. <laughs> but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Christ wasn't late. He came in the fullness of time. And here in this passage, we see Elizabeth, the voice of blessing, the first to openly bless and worship the Messiah, the one who would come to take away the sins of the world. What a beautiful account. Let's reflect on her this week as we think more about the Christmas story. Father, thank you for this passage. I thank you for including the life stories of individuals to help us understand how we can live in difficulties in life as well. <clears throat> Father, we know these individuals weren't perfect, but Father, we know they walked with you, and you want us to walk with you as well. Thank you for the privilege that you gave Elizabeth to be the one that would carry the forerunner of Christ. Father, the privilege of being able to see Mary and realize that she was carrying the Christ child, the first one to bless the Messiah, to worship him. Father, just so many tremendous lessons we can learn from this lady. <clears throat> Lord, as we take the next several weeks and reflect on the Christmas story, show it to us with new eyes. Father, we've read this countless times. Show it to us anew as though we're seeing it for the first time. Help us to look through the eyes of these individuals and see it from their perspective as well, and then teach us your truth. And for that, we'll thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.